Well, this is the Bible boot camp for the book of Esther. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the, the book of Esther. It's right next door to, uh, to Job and Nehemiah. Job and Nehemiah, the book of Esther. While you're turning there, you should have two handouts. One, it's an introductory sheet that has a lot of kind of background information as well as an outline that I'll be following. There's actually two outlines there. One that's a chiasm that you can kind of look at and try and figure out. Uh, I may talk about that in one of the question and answer sessions if you'd like, but uh, the outline that we'll be following there is the simple one uh, right under the key terms and phrases. Again, if you've never been to one of these boot camps, these little sheets are really helpful for me. Whenever I'm studying a book of the Bible, this is where I begin putting one of these together. It helps me to understand the context uh, of the books and what's going on. So I just encourage you to yeah, use this as, as a sort of model for uh, your own Bible study. And then the other handout is just a, a, a thing that you can take notes on. So if you're listening online and you'd like those, uh, it should be available there on our website at drbc.org. If you have any questions about anything that we do during these, you can email info at drbc.org. That's delraybaptistchurch.org. We are studying tonight the, the book of Esther. All right, now there's only two books in the Bible that are named after women. Esther is one of them, and the other is Ruth. Yeah, the other is Ruth, and Lord willing, we'll be doing Ruth in, in, in the morning. Now, it's interesting. Esther is a Hebrew woman. Uh, who marries a Gentile king uh, that God used to help preserve Israel from destruction. Ruth is a Gentile woman who married a Hebrew man that God used to uh, perpetuate the line of Messiah. Both of these women, uh, who these books are, are named after, play prominent roles in the history of, of Israel. Now, for Esther in particular, I think some historical kind of framing would be really helpful. So if you're looking at your, your hand out there, this is going to be under the, uh, uh, the historical timeline stuff. You'll remember that um, after the northern kingdom was taken away into captivity by Assyria, the southern kingdom was then taken away um, by Babylon. Three waves from 605 to 586. Uh, Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar uh, took them off uh, to, yeah, in light of, because of their, their sin. Then in 539 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia, uh, he defeated the Babylonian king and took over his empire and began to, to rule the world. So went from Assyria ruling to the world, to Babylon ruling the world, and then to Persia ruling uh, the world. Then in 538, King Cyrus issues a decree that, that Jewish exiles uh, are free to return to their, their home. They can go back to the land and begin to rebuild and worship God there. So this was, this was to be great news for the, the people of Israel. And um, yes, yeah, some, some did. In 537, you have the first group of exiles, roughly 50,000 that went back, uh, led by Zerubbabel. You can read about that in the book of, of Ezra. Um, but not everybody went back. Not everybody went back. Not all of the Jews left Persia to go back to, to the nation of, of Israel. And the book of Esther is written about the Jews who didn't go back. This is, this is written about the Jews, what's going on with the Jews who decided to not listen to the prophets and decided to, to just stay in the land. 
All right, and there's, there's various reasons that they, they may have done that. But um, listen to this just from Zechariah chapter 2. This is what Zechariah the prophet says uh, to the people who remain in Persia. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have uh, spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. And then Isaiah 48, go out from Babylon, flee from, uh, Chalde- uh, <clears throat> from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. So there's this command for the remnant to go back to, back to the land. Now, why do you think they decided to not go back to the land? Now remember, they've been, they've been in Persia now for about some 50 years. And Persia is Susa, the capital city. It's kind of the place to be. What do you think kind of comes with that? Why might they want to stay? Pardon? Yeah, they like the city. What are they going to like about the city? Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of it. It's going to provide some illusion of safety, security, prosperity. Because what are you going to have to do if you go back to, to the land of Israel? You're going to rebuild. That's hard work. There's going to be enemies that are surrounding you, always coming after you. You read Nehemiah, it's not an easy job. Like, they're, they're, they're camping out. It's not pretty. It's not easy. So these Jews who are hanging back in Persia, they're like, you know what? We kind of like it here. It's pretty plush. So they, they have become, in many ways, compromised, and they're not obeying the prophets, and they're staying back because they love what Persia has to offer them. They're, they're caught up a bit in, in, in the world, all right? So Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah are written uh, to and about those who obeyed God and returned to the land. Um, and the book of Esther is written about those who, who did not. All right? Anybody have any questions just about background framing there? I think it's important to yeah, know what's going on. We good? All right. So what we're going to do then is we're going to start with a wicked king. A wicked king. And we're just going to follow this this storyline, it, it is a narrative, so it's a, it's a story, and we intend to walk through um, telling the story, hoping that we can get caught up in the story, but observing things along the way to help us to understand how the Jewish readers would have, have received this. So we're going to begin by seeing a wicked king, followed by a new queen, an exalted villain, an unsuspecting hero, some poetic justice, and then a glorious reversal. This is how the, the book will go. So let's start here with a... A, a wicked king in chapter 1, 1 down through uh, verse 22. Now, this king, uh, uh, it, depending on the translation of your, your Bible, you may have King Ahasuerus or you may have King Xerxes. It's the same name, okay? So Xerxes is easier to pronounce, so we're going to go with Xerxes, okay? Because I'll be slobbering all over myself if I'm trying to pronounce the other way the whole time, okay? But he was popularly known as Xerxes, uh, the, the first Xerxes. He ruled in Persia from 586 to 465. So he's about 21 years of reigning uh, before he was assassinated by his, his bodyguard. And you've got to understand, in the Persian culture, how would a king have been viewed? Yeah, very similarly to the way the pharaohs were, like, like gods. He would have been some sort of either divine or at least in touch with the divine in such a way that he's going to be distinct and he's going to be viewed as some sort of, of god or at least close to it. So he's going to be highly venerated. 
He's going to have unchecked power, unchecked authority. Uh, he will be served. He will be, he will be feared. He will be worshipped. That's who this, this king is. All right. Let's pick it up here in 1.1. Now, in the days of Xerxes, the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. So this is an enormous kingdom that he's ruling over. In those days, when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, so this would have been 483 B.C. if you're scoring at home, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Verse 4, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now that's a party. Verse 5, when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So after you have this 180-day feast, he says, all right, we're going to open the gates to everybody. And now you're going to have this seven-day feast where the commoners are allowed to come. So this is a, this is a big deal, right? Verses 6 and 7, we see all the fancy decorations. Drinks are served in golden vessels. Verse 8, drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. Which means the king's saying, you don't have to drink if you don't want to. But it's an open bar and a free bar, so enjoy. Right, so it's an invitation, but not an exhortation. So they're free to do this. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Basically, this king is catering to his guests. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. So this, this opening scene, we, we, the opening scene we go into and it is a party, right? It is a party unlike most others. One that has been rocking for, this is a six-month Mardi Gras. And it is just, it is happening, right? Um, it's a festival put on by Xerxes. And what's he doing during this festival? He's what? He's showing off. He's showing off his splendor, his glory, his riches. He says, everybody come and see what I have. Now, why might he be doing this? Is he just full of himself? Certainly. But that's not all. There's more going on here. Historically, what we know, he's about to try to go to war with the Greeks. So what he's doing during this is a bit of a, uh, if you will, recruiting campaign. Where he's calling in all these other leaders to come in and to dine with him. And he is letting them to see all of the splendor of his kingdom. Because he figures what? If he lets them see the splendor of his kingdom, what's going to get in the mind of all these other kings? We can have us some of that if we partner with him. And these, guys were so, these guys were so rich that eventually when they, they moved from one place to another, they said, uh, I'd have to look up exactly where this was, but I read that they left behind couches made of gold. Golden couches, y'all. Like that's I don't I don't know what I don't know how things are at your house. That's not how it is at my house. These guys had golden couches. This there was splendor that was really unmatched from all of their imperializing throughout the the, the world. So he's parading before them all of this, trying to convince them that they too can have it if they will align with him in battle. Well, he also mentions here that for the ladies, there's so there's a women's retreat going on at the same time. And Queen Vashti's over here, and she's doing her thing for them. Verse 10. 
On the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, that means he was drunk, uh, he commanded his seven eunuchs, a bunch of guys, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, this is where we need to understand, again, the cultural context is, is very helpful to understand what's likely going on here. This is not just some man who is proud of his beautiful wife. This is, this is not what's, what's, what's going on here. He is treating her as, as a trophy. He would have had many wives and concubines, but she is the queen. So she is set apart from the rest of uh, his wives and, and the harem. But he's treating her here as, as, as a trophy. He is ex exploiting her here as an ornament. And if you read through Persian literature, what is likely, he's, come, he's asking her to come out to sexually exploit her. This is, this is not some kind of, hey, look, my wife's pretty. He is going to tell her to come out and do things that would be demoralizing in front of, of everyone else. You've got to understand that Persia is a godless place of perversion. So this is, when you read this, think the same sort of thing that was likely going on with uh, Herodias' daughter. You remember when, when she danced for Herod on the night that she asked for John the Baptist's head and said she danced for him and it pleased him very much. She was not just a good dancer. This was some sort of erotic sexual request for her to come out and put on a display uh, in front of everyone. Well, verse 12, Queen Vashti ain't having it this night. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs? Then one of his counselors said, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. <laughs> you want to talk about some insecure fellas right here. They are starting to freak out. Because Queen Vashti didn't come out and do what the king asked her to do. So now what are they worried is going to happen? Yeah, they're going to have a, they got a national catastrophe right now. There is a, they are worried that Vashti is going to kick off some women, women's lib movement that is just going to rock the entire place. None of the wives are going to listen to the husbands anymore. We have got to get this mess under control. Verse 19. So, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdoms, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Because that'll work. Right? Verse 21. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as his counselor had proposed. Verse 22. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, to every uh, people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. 
So the king commands that the queen come in, honor him, glorify him, but instead she appropriately protests here, which dishonors and shames him. Which again, you're in a shame and honor culture, and this is, this is, this is big time. So the king has to figure out what to do. He calls in his counselors, and he says, all right, fellas, what do we have on the book uh, for whenever, uh, whenever a wife won't listen to her husband and come out and, and do what I've asked? Well, we've got nothing, sir, but we have a brilliant plan. Here's what we're going to do. Why don't we remove her crown? Let's banish her from your presence, and let's make an example of her uh, to teach all the women of your kingdom to stay in their place. Now, this is going to sound like a brilliant idea to him, um, but one of the things that we need to understand here, did you, did you notice what they said about making this edict? Did you catch it there? Verse 19, you're going to make, make this royal edict so that what? So that it may not be repealed. Here's a little something that you want to hang, hang in wherever you're, you're, you're doing your notes, is to remember that under Persian law, if a Persian king makes an edict, an official edict, and does you know, his signet ring and all this kind of stuff on it, if he makes an official uh, edict, he can't revoke it. He can't just hit delete button. He can't say, ah, I didn't mean it. It's set in stone. Um, can you think of another Persian king who wanted to change one of his edicts, but he couldn't? Anybody remember? Yeah. You remember Daniel chapter 6? where the king who wanted to alter the, the edict to keep Daniel from going into the lion's den. And it says, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. This is very important to remember. So you can't, you can't hit the delete button on this. So once he does this, it's a done deal. All right. Now, You'll see you can get creative, and there's other ways to get around this. There always is in politics. So he's going to figure out a way to do that later when he needs to. But right now, this is important just to understand about, about Persian uh, kings. All right, so this edict goes out. Vashti is sent off to wherever she is. She's banished. And now historically, for the next two years, the Persians go to battle with the Greeks. Uh, there's a famous battle that occurs during this time the, between the Persians and the Greeks. Anybody know what it was? Thermopylae. Very good. The, the 300 Spartan warriors. So this happens during this time. This is the Persian king who's ruling during this time. They go to battle for some two years and they lost. Persia loses. So Xerxes comes home and he's sad. All right? Now... Whenever you read uh, a little bit of Herodias' writing, so he was a historian who wrote during the time, not, not, a, not a believer, um, and writes about this, about Xerxes, and he said this about him, that he had an addiction to women and wine. And after one defeat in battle, probably this one here, the, the Greeks, uh, he took comfort in his harem. So this is, this is what he does. He comes home. He can't conquest uh, against the Greeks. So what he's going to do is he's going to conquest against the ladies. And he is going to fill his harem and he's going to find comfort in his concubines. So I hope you're noticing so far, this is not a good dude. Alright? But this is the way of the Persians. This is the way they did it. Chapter 2, Scene 2. We're going to have a new queen. 
there's an, a, a new queen. So we have a, a wicked king, and now we have a, a new queen. Since Vashti has been exiled here, the king will need a new queen. <laughs> but what this guy doesn't know, who thinks he's ruling the world, is that there's a God who we haven't heard his name mentioned yet. Now, that's important. Because anybody know there's some Bible trivia about the book of Esther? What's unique about the book of Esther? It's the only book in the Bible where God's name is never mentioned. Never mentioned. Now there's another one that's close where God's name is only mentioned once. The Lord. Anybody know what that is? Song of Solomon. Lord is mentioned once. But Esther never is God's name mentioned. Now, what's really interesting, I think, that if you just read the book of Esther and you didn't know that, and I said that to you, I think you probably wouldn't believe me. And the reason is because as we go through this, what you're going to see is though God is silent in regards to His name, His hand and His actions are very loud. He is moving through the entire thing. And I think the reason that God's name is not there, it's on purpose. Anybody want to anybody maybe speculate as to why the Holy Spirit would lead this author to pen this work of historical reality, interpreted by the Spirit, guided here? Why, why would do this without mentioning God? What does it reflect? Does, yes, we do see His sovereignty. Tell me something about the people. His preservation of His people. Which people? Which Jewish people? The ones who are in Persia who've forgotten God, who don't want to go back to the land, and they just want to be there. It's like they've forgotten God. So the story is told as if He's not there. But He is there, and you can't miss Him. And one of the whole points of the book is to prove that the God that you might forget never forgets you. And that He is in the midst of His people, caring for them, protecting, providing the whole way through. Alright? Chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, that means His whooping by the hands of the Greeks, He's comes back. When the anger of King Xerxes had abated, He remembered, remembered Vashti, and what He had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Verse 3, And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. So, the king is ready for a, a new queen. And the king's counselors suggest, here's what we should do, king. Let's do a beauty pageant. We're, we're going to do a beauty pageant to find you a new queen. This is going to be the most epic season of The Bachelorette ever. This is what they're going to do. Now, a harem is uh, it's a housing quarters for concubines and other servants. So a harem is a part of the house where concubines and servants would reside. And these concubines are basically young ladies who are available for the king's sexual pleasure. Uh, 
they, they were, yeah, they would become concubines in all sorts of, of various ways. Sometimes they were bought, bought in markets, uh, slave markets. Sometimes they were, they were given as gifts by other kings. So it's very likely that some of those kings who came to that party would have brought concubines for this king because he was known for liking that. So it's very likely they would have brought some in. And basically what kings would do is they would, yeah, they would, they would oftentimes kidnap these, these young ladies and, yeah, basically turn them into exotic collectibles. This is how they, they were, were viewed. So when you hear this story that's about to unfold here in chapter 2 about this getting the beautiful women to come in and to see who's going to be the queen, I think one of the injustices to Bible teaching that happens sometimes is when this is portrayed as kind of a fun little beauty pageant uh, that is about a love story where Esther falls in love with the king Xerxes. It's the furthest thing from that. This is not, this is not glamorous. The call here by these counselors is for the king to seek out beautiful girls, to gather them up, also known as kidnapping many of them, to exploit them sexually. This is not an an audition. This is an abduction. Now, I want to be really clear. Certainly there are some girls who would love to go do this. They They would have loved to have gone to to go try out as a word to be queen. They would have been happy with going through whatever they needed to do um, sexually in order to, to advance in this, this competition. But there's many girls who would not have wanted to. But they would have had no choice and no rights at all. Verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, pause right there. Who's, who's a famous Kishite? Saul. Very good. King Saul was a famous Kishite. All right? Hold that one back here. That'll be important in a little bit. He's a Benjamite, verse 6, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away by, um, yeah, with, with uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So here we meet the two main characters. Right? We've got Mordecai and Esther. They are related how? They're cousins, right? They're, they're cousins. He's likely older, and he is, he is caring for her because what has happened to her parents? They're dead. We don't know how they died. I mean, it's, it's not, in, yeah, it's not like unlikely that they died during the exile. I mean, this was a brutal time where they would strip down captives and put hooks in their mouths and in their in their jaws and lead people away and beat people. I mean, this is, this, is not, this is not just, hey, would you guys like to go on a trip? Her parents are dead. Now, I think this is just important to, 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 to think about for a minute. Esther, Hadassah, 
she has a traumatic background. Go ahead, already, tell me, tell me what she's been through, just from what we see right here. So she's lost her parents, so she's a what? She's an orphan. What else has she lost? She's lost her home, right? I mean, she's been, she's been, she's been pulled out of her homeland. When you lose your home you're, and your homeland, what else do you lose? Provision. Provision? What else? Identity? Your culture? I mean, everything. Freedom? Everything's gone. She has been, she has a rough. There are a lot of wounds in this girl's life. And now, she's about to get moved again because some pervert king wants to try out for a beauty contest. This is, this is what she's going through, right? Now, Esther, her Persian name means star after the goddess of Ishtar, who was the goddess of war and sex. Hadassah was her Hebrew name. Uh, anybody know what it means? You have a study Bible there? Or maybe you just know? Myrtle. Well, that's interesting. Myrtle. Now, anybody know why Myrtle is actually a wonderful name to name your child if you're a, if you're a Jew? In the prof, in prophet Isaiah, in several places, including Isaiah 55, 13, God uses the myrtle bush as a contrast to the thorn bush about what God will do when he redeems Israel out of exile, that he will make her blossom like a myrtle and she will be beautiful and fertile. This is the picture of, of redeemed beauty is kind of the, the idea of what she's named, she's named after here. Then we've got Mordecai. Mordecai is, comes from the, the name Marduk, which is one of the, is the lord of the Babylonian gods. So notice here, these two Jews, they have been renamed. You're going to lose all of your Jewish identity, and we're going to name you after our gods. We're going to name you after Marduk, and we're going to name you after Ishtar. Now, though they have been, they've been through a lot of trauma and a lot of hardship, I think it is very important to also notice here, they shouldn't be here right now. They should have gone back to the land. So while it is good for us to feel sorrow for them, we need to also see here that there's to be some correction that should be had. They're not being faithful they shouldn't be in the land right here in Persia. They should have gone back. And they are absorbed in this Persian culture. And everything that's about to start happening um, in some way, shape, or form is, is a result of some of that. Now, that does not in any way, shape, or form excuse the fact that this king is a tyrant doing evil things. Both things are always in play at the, all the time. There's always wicked rulers in the world, and we're always a bunch of sinners. And all of that is always colliding all of the time. And we feel that here in the book of, of Esther. Verse 8. And just so you know, we're going to work through this a little bit, then we'll pause and we'll take some questions, and then we'll take a break and we'll dive back in. Okay, so verse 8. 
So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the, cust- in the custody of Haggai, the uh, est- uh, custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. So he's the, uh, he's the eunuch. And put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Verse 9. And the young women pleased him and found his favor. The young woman did. This is Esther. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Verse 10, Esther had not made uh, known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her to not make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening with her. So, like so Esther is starting already to look like whom? Who's another character from the Old Testament? Yes, amen, yeah, Joseph. Starting to look a lot like Joseph here. Wherever she is, starting to blossom. She, she's, she's, she is winning favor in the eyes of whomever she is, she's around, okay? And she gets some special treatment here. Now, I think it's important to notice What does Mordecai instruct her to do regarding her Jewish heritage? Keep that on the down low. Keep that quiet. Nobody needs to know. Now, there's some different takes on why this might be happening. What, why, what are some, what are some options here? What's, what's one reason? Yeah, so this could be seen as, it's certainly for protection, okay? It can either be birthed out of being shrewd, which might look like whom? Who's somebody who's shrewd, who kind of veils the truth in order to operate by faith? Rahab. Yeah, Jacob, nah, Jacob's just shady. He's not, he's, <laughs> I mean, maybe, I mean, he had some, he had, he had some moments of faith, but he is, he is more shady. So you got somebody like Rahab, right? Um, could be like Rahab, where there's some shrewdness here, right? Or this could be quite the opposite of Daniel, Right, so Daniel, you've got to remember, when you see him making the stand, uh, I mean, he was not, he wasn't having anything. He wasn't having any of what the king was telling him to do. And he was very bold, where some have said that she's, she's cowardly here, quite opposite Daniel. I think the good, the good thing to notice is that God doesn't comment. God doesn't tell you. Um, so I think it's okay to feel that tension and wondering, is this good, is this bad? And I think, again, this is, this is how you're supposed to feel a little bit while you're reading the book because they're not where they're supposed to be and you're like, is this good? Is this bad? How's this going to turn out? What's going on in her heart? Which is intended to make you as a reader feel the same thing. All right. So the, um, yeah, about this, uh, Esther, she and Mordecai are a bit hidden at this stage, which again is going to parallel what? The hiddenness of God. So they're in hiding. Well, God's in hiding too. But he's acting faithfully, even though we're not sure exactly what's going on with them. Right? Well, verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Xerxes, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, Verse 13, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, 
And in the morning, she would return to the second part of the harem. She would not go in again to the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So what's going on here for a year? What's, what do these women get, get brought in and for a year, what's going on? This is a year-long makeover, right? So this is, this is Biggest Loser. This is Fixer Upper. This is everything tied into one. One whole year of beautification. Oils, ointments, spa treatments, everything they need to do to get these women as beautiful as, as possible. Essential oils, everything, right? So one thing I think it's important to notice here Notice how this king, notice his worldliness and ungodliness in his approach to taking a wife. What does Proverbs 31 say about a wife? Charm is deceitful and beauty is in, in vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she will be praised. That's not even on this guy's radar. All he's worried about is go get me the most beautiful women on the planet, bring them in here, make them more beautiful, and then I'm going to have my way with them. This man has no category for anything godly. He is into conquering and collecting and using. So what's being described here about the woman going in and coming out, this is not, this is not an evening in the fantasy suite. This is a systematic using of women. And again, some would enjoy it. There would certainly be some, some ladies who were all about it, who loved the competition, were into the sensual pleasure. But there's many who would not. They would not have had a choice. This, it's your turn. The king has called you. You're going in. Now think about that. Again, these, these women, what was one of the prerequisites? You've got to be beautiful, and then you also got to be a what? You've got to be a virgin. You're going to go in and you're going to lose your virginity to this brutal dictator. And then he's going to send you off. And you're going to be locked up in some other part of the house. And you're never going to be with a man again unless he decides that he wants to fetch you. This is demoralizing. Listen, as much as people talk about... Christianity and the way that it views women, you've got to understand every culture in the ancient world, the way that they treated women was horrific. The way that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament treats women and commands his people to view women and care for them is, yeah, otherworldly distinct from the way women were viewed by the rest of the culture. Well, these women would have been living widows unless the king called. Well, 2.15. When the turn came for Esther to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what uh, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all, eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor. The word there is hesed. We'll come back to that. In his sight, more than all the virgins. 
so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants in Esther's feast. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So Esther goes in and she comes out. And she wins the king's heart. Now, without even knowing it, this king has just made a Jewish woman the queen. He has no idea that she's Jewish. And then what he does is he, he does a feast in her honor. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and, and talk about it a little bit here. Happy to talk some more about it in, in, in Q&A time. One of the questions I think that we probably wrestle with as we come to this is why did Esther go through with this? Why did she do what all the rest of the women did? And there's lots of discussion about this. And just like we saw before, the Bible does not give us a window into her heart. Was she afraid? Was she forced? Was she raped? Was she excited, willing, eager? We don't know. And I don't think it's right to say this is exactly what happened. Because I just don't think, we, I don't think we know. Esther was certainly entangled and absorbed in the Persian culture. That's, that's, that's evident. This may have even looked normal to her. Which is one of the dangers of the longer that you're in a culture unchecked. Is that this is just what you do. This is the way it is. This is the way we do it around here. We don't know. Certainly the king abused his power. There's no doubt. This is, this, it's unquestioned. Everything he's doing is wicked. He had to want to write. But I do think it's important for us to know here. So did, did Esther compromise? It was certainly, it was certainly sin to have, to have sex outside of marriage. But goodness, is she raped? All these kinds of things. We don't know. What we do know is this. God is always and really only working in the midst of the mess. God is always working in the midst of broken people who are hurting, who are, who are hurt and hurting one another. This, God is always working in the midst of that. And I think that is the thing that should be prominent as we, we think of, about this. The other thing that I think is important to notice here is after she's made queen, what happens? What does the king do? First of all, he celebrates. He says, no more taxes. Everybody's like, no more taxes. Right? So he's gonna, they're going to do that. That's going to happen. You're going to see he's going to revoke that at the end of the book, by the way. He's like, that tax thing, we back on. Okay, so he'll, he'll fix that later. But he's gonna, he wants everybody to feel the joy right, uh, that he's feeling. So he, no more taxes. But what else does he do? He, he throws a feast. It's a holiday. We're going we to feast. Now, this is really important. Because feast is a reoccurring theme all the way through Esther. We've already seen three feasts. This is the third one. You had Xerxes' first one. You had Vashti's little women's retreat. And then you've got this one. Right? This is your third one. There are four more to come. There are tons of feasts here. And we're going to see that because the whole book is going to culminate in a feast. 
Verse 19. Now Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. Uh, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she brought, was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, uh, Big Thin and Teresh, Big Thin, that's a great name. Anyway, um, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. So they're mad at the king and they're plotting a what? An assassination. Verse 22. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. Meaning, she came and said, uh, Mordecai, one of the righteous men of your kingdom, has found out, king, that there's an assassination plot by these two jokers. You should know about it. He wants you to know. Long live the king. Verse 23. When the affair was investigated and found to be true, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And, now this is important, it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Just note that, okay? We're going to see that again later. So Mordecai overhears this assassination plot. Now, think about it. How might he have been tempted? You've got a wicked king who has been behind all sorts of torturing and killing of your people, who has basically kidnapped your niece or your cousin and, yeah, is just doing whatever he wants to with her, what might you be tempted to do if you're Mordecai? Good time for a vacation. And just go off with that info and see what happens and let this king die. Because this king needs to go. But he doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do that? Because he's righteous. He knows that God raises up and puts down leaders. And his job is not to raise up and put down leaders. His job is to trust God in whatever the circumstance may be and to be salt and light there and to 1 Timothy chapter 2, pray for the emperor. So he, he honors God here by honoring the emperor. Well, they get investigated, these two guys, and they get hanged on the gallows. Now, when you hear hanged on the gallows, don't think Western, you know, like a Western movie where people are getting hanged. This is, this is not um, that sort of hanging. Persia was known for a unique kind of public execution. A gallow can also, it's, it's the word tree, what they would do is if they were going to kill somebody, is they would go out to a tree, they'd cut off the top, and they, they would sharpen it, and it would become a spear. And then they would impale people on it. You either put them, go in through the bottom, or through the torso, and you are left there to die. And they, I mean, they crafted this, uh, I read a little bit too much on it last night, I was like, this is why I might stop reading on this, but I mean, they, they would, they had it down to a science, to where if, if you were put on the on the gallow, then they had this, this ointment that they could put around the wound that would hold you together to keep you alive longer. This was not a good thing. This is not a quick death. Th these, this is what has happened to these, these men. They have been publicly executed. And the reason that it was done this way was to be done as an example. You cross the king, 
this is what happens to you. We're going to skewer you in front of everyone. So, just to notice here, God, well, we shouldn't, shouldn't say since he's not in the book here. Mordecai just so happens to be at just the right place, at just the right time, to just hear, just so, you know, by chance, overhear this conversation and just have the connections with Esther to be able to get the message to the king. Just so happens that way. Just another note. You should be, that's one of the things when you're studying through Esther. Be watching for the hand of God arranging all of this. This is, this is going to come back uh, later on in the story in an important part. Now, we're going to pause for just a moment to take, a, to take our first break. Before we do that, though, I want to see, are there any questions about what we've seen in the story so far? I'll do my best to answer. Uh, I'm not an expert in Persian culture, but I'll, I'll try. All right, so, Anthony. Yes, so what was uh, the estimate of Esther's age? I don't know. I, I really don't know. That's a great question. I probably could have made something up better, but I have no idea. Uh, King Xerxes, um, I could probably have figured that out by how he long, he, if anybody looks up to see how old he was when he died, uh, he, was a, he reigned for 21 years. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm going to make up something. I don't know. Yeah, I should have just said I don't know. Sorry. Why didn't Mordecai and Esther leave? Probably the same reason that a million other Jews didn't leave. I mean, imagine me going up to New York City and finding a successful Jewish lawyer and saying, hey, why don't you move back to the motherland for the glory of Yahweh? <laughs> like, leave everything here in New York City and go back. How's that going to go? It's just not, no. Well, it's that same kind of, of thing, right? Yeah. Two years, yeah, about, about two years was the so time between Vashti out and new queen in. Pardon? So there, for two years, there was no queen. There's no queen, but he had plenty of concubines. Okay, yeah, it. so he was taken care of. Yeah. Danny. Hey, Danny. Um, am I remembering correctly that Persia is modern day Iran? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that territory is covered. There's a yes. lot of history. It, well, yes, and it would have been it would have been beyond just Iran. There's, I mean, this is a huge province. So it would have been on into India and it stretched beyond that. But yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Which, which chapter? Uh, Two nineteen. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. I'm uncertain if they were all brought out, likely to see the feast. So I'm not sure that, that might have been what was happening, because everybody would have come to this feast to celebrate. Uh, I'm not sure if, if that's what it is, or if they've just all been called to be with the king and to hang out or what. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, that's good. Do you have a question? Was there anything like culturally different with Babylon and Persia? Because they were under Babylon, technically Persia and Persia. Great. Uh, was there like a transition for them? Good. Good question. Yeah, so was there a difference between the reign of Babylon and Persia? Yeah, so each, 
each ruling civilization, every, every king is going to have their, their different flavor of ruling. Uh, the Persians were actually much easier to, to be under. The Babylonians were just, I mean, it was ISIS all the time. Um, but, but the Persians, though you don't want to cross them, they'll give you freedom. Similar, not, not quite as much freedom as Rome. So Rome, if you don't pay, if you, you know, don't blaspheme the, the emperor and pay your taxes, you're good to go. You could basically do, do whatever. I mean, they can, it's not a fun place to live. But Persia would have been, uh, there would have been more freedoms culturally. Uh, that's why even letting the Jews go back to their homeland, uh, that would have been a, a huge thing. And obviously God's behind that with Cyrus, but yeah, that, that would have characterized them more than Babylon and then even Assyria. Babylon and Assyria were more similar in regards to their brutality and, and all that kind of stuff. Persia was brutal, no doubt, but it was, it was different. So, yeah. Um, so we'll take two more and then we'll, we'll have, a, have a break. Steve? Could Mordecai have reported the plot um, just to kind of put a feather in Esther's cap? Yeah, could Mordecai have reported this in order to help Esther? Maybe, probably, I don't know. Potentially. No. Yeah. Yeah, the reason I say honor the king is this is what you would do. This was instruction. This is what you were supposed to do. Like God said, Jeremiah 29, when you go to the place, you are to be a blessing in that place. And this is part of the way that you're a blessing. So, um, yep, oh, yep. Uh, I don't know all the connections of the gods uh, between Egypt and Thessalonians. Uh, uh, I'm not, yeah, not an area of expertise. Sorry, good question. I know it does derive from, it actually it derives from Baal and Ashtardi. Uh, so the Ashtara, Ashtara was, so Ishtar came from, it was, a, it was a derivative of that in some way, shape, or form. So I do think I remember reading that. So good. Last question. Yeah, yeah. So I would not say, I would not characterize across the board Mordecai as a righteous man. I think he's compromised in the same way that everybody else who who's didn't go back is compromised. They've dismissed the prophets. They should have gone back. So they are compromised in that sense. Um, I think, though, we're going to see him still doing righteous things in a way that he is going to be distinct. So, I mean, he's, he still has his heritage where he's got good teaching, right? Uh, so I, what I'm saying is that if, if indeed he reported this, which uh, to you know to honor the king, then I think that's that's a righteous move. It's the it's the right thing to do. It's great. Great questions. Uh, I'm going to pray. Then we'll take a break, and then we'll we'll come back in a couple minutes. Okay. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray uh, that you would help us. Yeah, to be to be thoughtful about the things that we're we're learning, Lord. To be humbled and realize how much better of a king you are. That you're a good king who always cares for those under your authority. And we thank you for that. We pray that as we, as we read and study, that we see more of how you're working, even when we don't see it. In the name of Jesus. Amen.